Hi, Sacred Tension fans. My name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy-Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers, and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like where did your band name come from and who's your favorite Friends character. We're asking questions like why did your marriage fail? Where does love come from? Is God real? It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passions. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long. Before we get started, I have just a couple of pieces of housekeeping. First, my colleague Matt Langston and I are working on building a podcast network called Rock Candy Podcasts. We are looking for creators who are interested in building something interesting and thought-provoking, and we cover everything from LGBT issues to music to film to comedy to theology. We are looking for all sorts of creators, and so if you are thinking of starting a show or you have kind of a fledgling show and are looking to get it off the ground, Matt and I want to help you with that, and uh, we will bring you on board if we like your show and we will help you produce it. So if you have any ideas for a show, please email me by going to my website, stephenbradfordlong.com. Also, this show is only possible because of my patrons. I already work full-time, and I teach three times a week, so this show is definitely a labor of love, and it takes a lot of time and energy to schedule, to record, to edit, and it's only sustainable because of my patrons. So if you enjoy my work, and if you want to help me continue to bring interesting conversations to the world every week, then please consider becoming a patron. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, and there for just a dollar a month or five dollars a month, you will get access to my patrons-only podcast called House of Heretics, in which my uh, friend Justin and I have long and very not-safe-for-work conversations about sexuality and theology and Jesus and uh, Justin's journey into Hinduism and all sorts of interesting things. So... All right. With that, I'm delighted to welcome to the show Robin Henderson Espinoza, PhD. They are a queer activist, Latinx scholar, public theologian, and they are the founder of Activist Theology Project. Robin, thank you so much for joining me. It's so good to be here. I'm excited. Yeah. So we've been, uh, you were first referred to me by our dear mutual friend, Peterson, uh, Peterson Toscano, who has been on the show twice. He is an extraordinary person. Yes. And, um, you know, we've just been kind of going back and forth for months now trying to find a time to talk. And so I'm so glad that we're finally able to do this. Yeah, it's great how it's great how all the networks are converging and coming together. So could you so I, I gave kind of this tiny introduction for you here at the top of the show, but could you tell us in greater depth what it is that you do and that you're passionate about? 
Yeah, you know, um, it's it's really interesting to trying to give an elevator speech <laughs> well, for, for what I do. When, well, you, you can know, take you can take the whole show if you want to. <laughs> this, this isn't an yeah. elevator speech. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if if I were to you know give it in two hundred eighty characters for a tweet, um, I would say that I am a theologian. I'm trained as a theologian. And I teach theology at Duke Divinity School, and I also teach theology and ethics in the public square, but in, in, in unconventional ways. And I'm mostly focused on harm reduction, solidarity, and collective liberation. And so those three core values or what drives me to do the work that I do. I spend a lot of time um, lecturing at schools, traveling to different community groups, spending time with folk. I've just finished a book that will be published by Fortress Press called Activist Theology. Oh, it's, when will that it, come out? It, it comes out October 1st of this year. Fantastic. I will I'll, uh, review it and, and promote it on the show. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so the, the work that I do is trying to incubate sta- uh, change, sustainable change, by responding to pressing social concerns. And one of the big things that I'm focused on this year is dismantling supremacy culture and trying to have Mm. robust conversations around dismantling supremacy culture. And so doing theology and ethics in the public square is not something, it's like, you you don't apply for that job, right? Like there's there's not like a position (laughs) for that. Right. But, you know, after the 2016 election that we all remember, I left my faculty post at the Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California and moved home to the South and felt that rooting my work in the South and and really thinking about harm reduction, solidarity, and collective liberation from the place of the South was the thing that I needed to do so that I could get to this work of dismantling supremacy culture. So that's the work that I do. I'm a, I'm a theologian and ethicist. I like to talk all things theory and praxis, mm. and I like to be with people on their journey as they make decisions on how to live out their call and vocation. And I like to be a part of the revolution. That's fantastic. So you mentioned those three things. Could you say them one more time? Sure. So the three things are, when I think about my work as a theologian, they are rooted by or grounded in three core values, which are harm reduction, solidarity, and collective liberation. Mm, Could you define what each of those means and why they're important? Yeah. So when I think about the religious trauma that we that a lot of us have endured, yes, it is a perpetuation of harm. And so when I think about my vocation as theologian, I primarily think about do no harm and approach it in a way so that I'm reducing the harm. So for example, when young queer and trans people reach out to me and are struggling with the 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 faith orientation of their childhood. We have a conversation about how theology is broader than the ways in which some churches, in particular evangelical churches, use the Bible as a weapon to diminish. So that's a way of harm. That's um, absolutely traumatizing people. So like that's an example of the companionship that I am often engaged in where I am practicing harm reduction in the very way that I'm engaging this conversation about theology. And then the solidarity piece is 
learning to be human with one another again, because we are failing to be human with one another. And when we find ways to be in deep solidarity, we we change. And so much of learning to be in deep solidarity with people is it are the stories that we know about ourselves and restoring ourselves and hearing one another into speech and learning to be in relationship with one another. And doing that across lines of radical difference. And then the third thing is collective liberation. And my desire is to try to move the needle a little bit closer to liberation. There's so much that comes out to me for that. because So I too am, am in the South. And I am in North Carolina. I was raised in a very conservative kind of Presbyterian world. And growing up queer in the South in a conservative Christian world is, as I'm sure you know, very, very difficult. And, you know, I went through reparative therapy and those wounds are still there. And so trying and and so a lot of what I'm trying to do is to create a world where we don't have to have those wounds anymore, where that kind of suffering is just completely vanquished. And, you know, what your point about we're not treating each other as human. Could you expound on that a bit more? Because I think that that's very interesting. And I think that there are ways that we fail to treat each other as human that we are not even aware of. And so I'm wondering if you could like point out or give examples of subtle ways in which we dehumanize one another. Yeah. Um, in, in our... You know, I'm thinking particularly in America. Uh, could you give some examples of the ways in which we are dehumanizing other people and we may not even be aware of it? Yeah. I mean, the thing that comes to my mind is something that is happening all throughout the South around the Confederate markers, the Confederate monuments. And we, I think many of us don't realize that the Confederate monuments not only, you know, they tell a story and they tell part of our history. And I think many of us don't realize how the narrative of the ways in which the Confederate monuments have been erected are actually dehumanizing those who have been enslaved or the ancestors that have been enslaved. I think we just don't even think about it. I think we think about we, you know, in this country, we like symbols. We like to have monuments. We like um, pretty things. And we actually don't think about the impact or the optics of things like monuments. And and I know that's a big sort of issue, but I think that's a real pragmatic example of uh, something really live. Yes, it really is. And, you know, another thing that springs immediately to mind is, I don't, I, I don't know if you're familiar with people like Jordan Peterson, who rose to fame, uh, I think it was two or three years ago now, because he refuses to use trans and non-binary people's preferred pronouns. Right. And, and that is a very real way in which we are not treating people with kindness and respect. Right. And, and, you know, what's, what strikes me as very interesting about all of this is how... So I, I feel like I'm in kind of the strange position of I am gay, and so I do have that minority experience, but I also have had to struggle with my own privilege as a white cis male. And I've had to learn what that means and the ways in which my experience as a white middle class Christian male is normalized. And yeah. 
And I've had to be mindful of how when, say, something other than that starts to gain prominence, there is, there has been, not anymore, but there has been in the past growing up, this immediate reaction and defensiveness. And I realize, you know, through a lot of struggle and introspection, I realize that that is because I thought that my experience was normative. I thought yeah. that my experience was all there was. And to then realize that, no, my experience is not normative, or it may be unfortunate. It's dominant. It's, it's dominant. dominant. That's what and I mean. It, it, That's it what I mean. the norm. Exactly. And so, and, and you know, if I did not have the minority experience of being gay, I don't think I would have ever gotten to this point. I don't think I would have ever been able to to confront it with uh because I think the shame and the frustration and the fear would have just been too great for yeah. me of confronting, you know, the fact that I am that I have been an accessory and enabler of patriarchy yeah. and racism. And so, you know, I can say that now with no shame. But if right. you were to talk to me 5 years ago, it would I mean it would have been too much. So this is the question that I always find myself asking. How do we, as a society, and it sounds like you are working on this of, of promoting kind of the next step towards revolution. How do we get from, from where I was feeling defensive, feeling fearful, to a place of accepting that this is actually a reality? And while acknowledging that we cannot control how other people think and feel. Yeah. But but how do we even begin to confront this? Because, you know, if I did not have the minority experience of being gay, I think it would have taken me much longer. And I don't know if I would have gotten there at all. So th I think this is a great question. OK, um, because I, I believe in a diversity of tactics and and what I have to offer is not should not be like the only thing. It should join in a chorus of other tactics that, that we are doing to get to the next fold of liberation. And I think that one of the things that we need to do is restore ourselves and return to story and learn to tell the stories of our ancestors, learn to tell the stories of our origins, and figure out how we can recover the roots so that we can actually nurture the garden. Because if we don't, um, if we don't tend to the roots, then they may still be infested with disease that are causing us to tell stories that are producing harm, minimizing solidarity, and not creating conditions for liberation. So I think one of the things that we need to do in our dismantling supremacy culture work is a return to story and figuring out how story can be the praxis work for us to actually do the work in the world, to be in deep, deep relationship with people, which requires our bodies to also be in the world. And so many of us don't know how to feel. And so part of this work is learning to body your feelings and figuring out how we can be more than just thinking people and just brains existing in the world but being deeply integrated and finding that what I like to call somatic epistemology, that bodily knowing that helps us to be in relationship that creates conditions for collective liberation. You know, what you're saying reminds me of something that a YouTuber, uh, a trans YouTuber named ContraPoints 
brings up. Uh-huh. And if you're not familiar with her, she's extraordinary. But she recently said in a video that real acceptance is based on real understanding and that it isn't enough for us to say at, for and I've heard a lot of people say this well you know I don't understand you but I will accept you that's great that's a good starting point but we have to have that kind of deep rooted understanding of one another or else our acceptance will be arbitrary is kind yeah. of the way I think about it so look if we could kind of step back and just define some terms um what to you is what 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 do you mean when you say what was the term you used? Authoritarian culture or um, supremacy culture? Thank you. Yes, yeah, supremacy culture and then liberation. What are your definitions for for these things? Yeah, that's great. So when I think about supremacy culture, I think about a a type or a kind of existence that claims to be the capital T truth and norm. So. I think we can see this in race. We can see how there is, when we think about race, which is a social construction, that race was created to elevate certain people and diminish other people. And that is a type of supremacy culture. We can see this with money, that money and wealth, social capital is available to some, but not all. This is a type of supremacy culture. Some might refer to it as neoliberal capitalism. There is a way of elevating um, cisgender people, those who were who are born as female or male and identify as such and identify with the genitals with which they were born. That is a type of supremacy culture. When any time when we elevate and create a hierarchy of existence over and against someone else, we create a type of supremacy culture, which then prevents what I think we all need as collective liberation. Liberation is this like impossible freedom that we all need that creates so much fear and anxiety. This is Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was so afraid of freedom that he lived with this existential fear. But we have created systems and dynamics that have resulted in supremacy cultures that prevent us from living into a type of liberatory existence where we are free from the bullshit and are able to live in ways that are morally excellent, for example. You know, so I think one of the big confusions here that, and and I see this all over the place, is that when we talk about things like supremacy culture or patriarchy or homophobia or racism. People hear it, and this is how I heard it for a long time. People hear it as a personal care judgment of character. Right. Versus, and sometimes it is. And and here's what I often find myself telling people and reminding myself of. You know, whenever I get uncomfortable, I just have to lean into it and assume that it isn't personal. But even if it is personal, I still have to confront it. Like, even if yeah. it is personal, I still have to have the courage and the strength to, you know, in the words of the 12 steps, make a fearless moral inventory of myself. And so right. that's something that I often find myself telling people uh, who have a problem with 
this is, hey, look, if there's something out of the queer community or uh, out of, you know, communities of people of color and whatnot that's making you uncomfortable, lean into it. It isn't personal, but even if it is, you got to have the courage to deal with that. Yeah. But, but I think most of the time people do hear it as personal. Most of the time, I think people do hear this as a... Um, a judgment of their personal character. And correct me if I'm wrong, and, and I may be completely off here, so you're welcome to, to correct me, but my understanding has evolved to this is less something that is a personal character flaw, although sometimes it is, but more a cultural system that we are unconsciously engaged in, or consciously, depending, you know, but, but that it is a... A uh, and kind of an impersonal system that is put in place, and and that we can examine that, therefore, kind of more objectively, and not have to, you know, feel these th- these these feelings of shame and and threat. Am I correct in that? Yeah, yeah, you're totally correct, and 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 I mean, we can go, we can totally go there. I I didn't want to front load a whole bunch of sort of theory and the ways in which you we're can. Con- you can totally do that. This is a heady show, so you are welcome to do that. Um, the reality is is that supremacy culture exists not only for the reasons why I have said, but also because we are all conscripted into a particular um, practice that perpetuates things like racism, classism, sexism, patriarchy. And we are all victims of it. We not only perpetuate it, but we are all victims of it. And white people and people of color, like we're all we're all victims of it. Some of us perpetuate it more. Uh, there are some people of color, I would say, who perpetuate supremacy culture, and that is part. It's by design. It's part of the 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 cultural mechanism that is producing this thing this collective consciousness, right? Mm, yeah, it's like Aunt Lydia in uh, in The Handmaid's Tale where a woman perpetuating that supremacy culture within that universe. Exactly. And and they're all victims of it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, this is not something that is going to, like, be tidied up with a bow on it by the end of 2019. This is, this is deep work that we must invest in for the survival of all of us and for a future of liberation. And this is much of what I think activist theology is, is looking at the ways that theology and ethics can tell a different story and can help undo the bullshit that keeps a boot on all of our necks. And we first have to recognize that the master's tools, theology, has been used to perpetuate supremacy culture, right? It has taken it has taken decades for theologians to apologize and repent or divest, however you want to put it, from from being white supremacist in their theologies, right? So this is slow work, but it's necessary work if we are going to survive ourselves. Otherwise, yeah. we turn into like a totalitarian existence where yeah. where those on top are the only ones to survive and they won't even survive themselves so do you think that there's a connection between this and things like climate change and late stage capitalism like this is very real these are very real threats concern for like you know 
income inequality, patriarchy, the sort of systems that we have in place, in my view, directly are, are directly connected to like the threat of cataclysmic climate change and the yep. inability to act. And so when you say we have to dismantle these things for the sake of humanity, you don't mean that in, and this is what I'm hearing, is you don't mean that in kind of a figurative spiritual sense, although that might be true, but in a definite, very real, very tangible sense, like this does yep. physical harm to entire communities. Yep. Uh, could you go into more uh, could you go into greater detail of the ways in which these systems of supremacy culture hurt everyone? I, I think that this is something that that is often missed. Like, it how does racism hurt white people? How does patriarchy hurt men? How yeah. does uh, homophobia hurt straight people? Yeah, yeah. Gosh, I mean, where do we like? Where do we start? Right. I mean, I think I'll start with with just the ways in which we all have internalized bullshit. We, we all have internalized sexism, we all have internalized misogyny, we all have internalized patriarchy, internalized homophobia, all of us. And, and that, that also is part of being conscripted into this cultural existence that stratifies people in ways that fortify hierarchies. Um, and and we, we are both victim and perpetrator of the very things that we internalize. And we are often trying very hard to speak against or dismantle the very things that we end up internalizing and perpetuating, right? It's a, it is a pernicious cycle. It's insidious. And we, we, people in the movement for social change spend hours upon hours upon hours seeking to, for example, undo white supremacy without realizing that the very ways that they are organizing are informed by white supremacy. Could you, could you give some demonstration of how that is? Because that's okay. So I can, I can think of an example within myself. And by the way, I'm being very self critical here because I, I want to encourage that in my listeners. Like yeah. I, I want to be able to encourage this sort of introspection and, you know, I think we should be able to freely talk about this. So I consider myself very much on the left and I consider yeah. myself very much, you know, I am I am everything the far right fears and not everything, yeah. but I'm a lot of the things that the far yeah. right fears. And yet, you know, my goal for this year on the show is to have more trans people more non-binary people and more people of color because yeah. I realized that despite my ideals, it has been a white cis sausage party on my yeah. show for the past for with a few exceptions, but but pretty much that's been it. Yeah. And I wasn't even aware of that until it was pointed out to me by some listeners. Yeah. And that is what that's what I realize people mean when we say, you know, good white liberals yeah. can still enable these kinds of systems. So I think this is this is this is a perfect example, right? Like you're on the far left, you're trying to do this good work. Yes. You're you're um a well meaning, well intentioned white gay guy who whose imagination has been so conscripted by the logic of dominance and white supremacy that in your doing good or well-intentionedness, 
you perpetuate the very thing against what you're fighting, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's kind of a mind fuck, but it's totally a mind fuck. And, but, you know, I just, so I'm a 12 stepper and, um, you know, I just carry with me that make a fearless moral inventory, you know, and doing the the fourth and fifth steps with my sponsor and the cur- having the courage to say, th- these are the ways in which I'm part of these systems. And we have to have the courage to look at that. We have to have the courage to make a, f- a fearless moral inventory. Yeah. Um, so which, which let me, d- let me yes, just say that yes. a fearless moral inventory requires imagination. It requires moral courage. Yes, it does. It does. And and I would say that if we don't have the the drive or the compulsion to exercise moral courage, we 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 will never get there. I mean, I I think you know my academic partner, who's a black queer ethicist, has t- said to me for years, imagination is the best thing we have on our side. We we none of us are harnessing imagination in a way. Yes. That 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 enables courageous living. You know, I think that this is such an important and powerful topic. And just the ways in which supremacy culture harms everyone, that doesn't mean that everyone is harmed in equal measure. That That's right. not at all what that means. It doesn't right. matter that... It, it, that you know, it doesn't mean that everyone's harmed in equal measure. But, you know, people like um, Christina Hoff Summers, who you may or may not be familiar with. She's, um, I, can't, I forget her YouTube channel, but she's like a big figure on the right. And she is part of the American Enterprise Institute, um, along with people like uh, Charles Murray uh, of the bell curve fame, of the bell curve infamy. You know, yeah. And so she comes from that corner of the web and, and she has enormous popularity and she is quick to point out that, well, no, we don't live in a patriarchy. And this is evidenced by that. You know, this is made clear to us by the fact that men die more frequently of suicide, die more frequently within jobs, live, live shorter lives, while in my view, failing to understand that those rates of premature death are because of a patriarchal right. standard of living. That's right. Um, That's right. And, and so men are uh, victims of this oppressive patriarchal regime in, in different ways from women, and maybe not as much. I don't know, but it definitely harms everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, yes, and... and the fact that the fact that you have a woman who is who is peddling a narrative that that suggests that patriarchy doesn't exist is a, is a is is like the thing that tells me that it does exist right i mean the, she's internalized so much of patriarchy Yes, yes, exactly. Well, and and you know, she said this other awful, but when I take a step back from it in a weird, ironic way, hilarious thing where, um, and by the way, I, I may or may not post a link to to her stuff. Uh, no, I won't. Just look, people who are who want to have some reference point, just go look up Christina Hoff Summers and you'll yeah, find no all her stuff. Yeah, no need to give her more. No need yeah, to exactly. give her more. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but what 
<laughs> you know, she says, well, you know, women are lower, make less uh, in the market because, uh, you know, in the job force, well, just because they make life choices. And it's actually their choice and that they're predisposed to make choices that are, um, you know, that, that, re- that mean that they're going to make less overall. But then, and this is what's so ridiculous to me, there is this psychotic breakdown over boys failing in school. It's like, oh, we, you know, and why are they not applying that exact same logic? Like, oh, well, you know, boys are just making bad choices. (laughs) You know, boys are just making choices that mean that they don't excel in school and they, you know, there are fewer boys in grad school than in women, than women, you know, whatever. But the fact that they have these, this different set of, of, uh, you know, they ha- they have this kind of hypocritical idea of expectations for men and women. Yeah. Men are having an issue in school, which is a documented fact. Men yeah. are struggling in school. And I do think that that is an issue uh, while women are excelling. And I would love to see men excel more in school. But to them, it's a crisis. Whereas women not making as much in the workforce, which is also a crisis, right. is just women, you know, making personal decisions and being biologically different and this to me is and and they do this and by they i mean this is people like joe rogan um you know the intellectual dark web crowd and i've spent a lot of time on this show criticizing them because i think they're so full of shit yeah um and and they do this so unselfconsciously, just not realizing that we're even that they're even applying this double set of standards, right? You know, and that to me is an example of upholding supremacy culture. Yep. Like, oh, women are just, you know, sh- women are are uh, don't make as much in the workforce. Well, just because they're women and they make these choices, and it's fine. Whereas right. boys are struggling in school, and suddenly it's a fucking disaster, and we need to right. rectify it immediately. Right. You know, which is a w- which is a way of privileging a particular um, gender over against another yes while 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 also using bioessentialist logic to diminish and and um and yeah to diminish and what's what's the other to sort of denigrate uh, the other gender and also the gender binary doesn't exist right like yes <laughs> so yes <laughs> As a non-binary transgender person, I would say the the gender binary does not exist. Absolutely. Preach. Okay, so uh, my next question is very, is for me very personal. Um, And I think it's something that a lot of people will be interested to hear, especially people of color, trans people, uh, queer people, etc. So I can't imagine that this is easy work for you emotionally. Yeah. And how, how do you who does as someone who does this work set good emotional boundaries so that the the pain of living in this world and engaging with these unjust hierarchies how how do you manage that in a way that it just doesn't totally crush you because yeah that's a great question you know like i this is something that i've struggled with forever you know i've been writing about uh, particularly gay gay issues, and I've been writing a lot about mental health and and mental illness, and I've been doing this for years now, and it's been a huge struggle for me to know or, or to to know how to not take on to not take on straight people's ignorance as my responsibility. Yeah, 
and to also be willing to try to change the world. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And, I mean, and so how do you go about that? What are, what are your methods? Yeah. What, what's in your toolkit? Yeah. So I take a siesta every day. And for, for at least 60 minutes, I lay down, I, I put my phone on Do Not Disturb, and I rest my eyes and rest my mind and rest my body every day. And that is not only like a spiritual discipline, but it, but it is also a way that I stay alive. Because the reality of this work is that it, it is death bringing to, to so many of us. Um, I eat as clean as I can. And, you know, that means I try to eat with the seasons and eat what, um, eat as many greens and whatnot as I can. Um, and so I try to put in my body the fuel that it needs to do this work. I see a therapist every week, and yeah. for for at least sixty minutes, I'm engaged with with my therapist, and I have a real tight inner circle, and I'm in contact with them on the daily, and it's the people who support my work, whether by giving me a foot rub or bringing me dinner that I'm able to remain grounded and, and be in it. You know, I was just telling someone last night, a loved one, um, you know, I said, I, I'm in a very dedicated relationship with my phone because so much of my work happens on social media or email or whatever. And this person said, yes, I've observed. And, and, <laughs> me too, yeah. And, That's the way it and, is with me as well. And, you know, last night was the Super Bowl and – I just gotten home from North Carolina, and um, I had this lovely dinner of salad and homemade chili that this loved one made, and I was offline the entire night, and it was so good for my mental health and my mental just being and my emotional being. So I, you know, I, I take a tech Sabbath once a once a week from Friday to sundown to Saturday sundown, and and but last night I decided to put my phone on the counter, plug it in, and not mess with it. So I I do these little things, right? It's little moves against destructiveness yes. that helps that helps fortify me. Um, and I'm very grateful to have good folks in my life who who just reach out and say, "Hey, let's go grab a beer, or let's go grab tea, or let me bring dinner over, or let me rub your feet, or what have you." Right? Yeah. And and that that keeps me buoyed in very very real ways. And, and I will also say a thing that people don't realize is this is very isolating work. And yes, so, it is. you know, because I'm in the world, because I'm, um, most times in front of people speaking, that's not how I want to spend my time at home. I don't want to be with a bunch of people, right? I don't want to be extroverting. I, I tell people I get paid to extrovert. Um, I do the, ex I tell people, this is kind of douchey on my part but i tell people i only socialize in large groups when i'm getting paid yeah yeah like i and that's what i and that's true you know i'm a yoga teacher and i manage a grocery store i manage a locally owned kind of salvage grocery store for my you know mountain valley here and and it is all social and so i literally tell people and i feel terrible when i tell people but they get it that i only socialize in large group you know groups larger than 4 i only socialize right. when i'm getting paid right, yeah. right. so i you know i i guard my time when i'm at home and and i take care of myself i mean just like today i was like oh i anticipate needing an extra hour an, an extra hour in my morning so that 
can we connect an hour later? And that was about self-care and self-preservation for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. You know, so mm. it, it, it seems trite and it seems silly, the things that I do, but it's the things that keep me engaged at a high level and, and not just a mediocre functioning, but keeps me really high functioning, really engaged in the work and really dedicated to the goal of collective liberation. And it's amazing what a siesta a day will get, will, will give to you. You know, that's, that's fascinating. And I've kind of taken a, a similar philosophy. I'm still amazed by how the hurt can sneak up on me, you know, and I don't know if you have this experience too, but you know, like for example, at the store the other day, a woman came in and I see this woman every single week and she's lovely, but, but she's from my former church that I was raised in and it's hard and, and it's hard to see her, but we're always very friendly and it's fine. But then for some reason, this was about two weeks ago, for some reason I saw her, she came through my line at the cash register and it wasn't okay for no reason, seemingly, you know, and it's just like, I don't know if it was because I hadn't eaten enough that day yeah. or hadn't slept well or whatever, whatever it was. But, you know, this person has, you know, a very, had a very deep connection to my ex-gay past, you know, when I was going through a period of therapy. And for some reason, just having that brief interaction with her just fucked me up yeah, so totally. much and it devastated me. And, and so it's like this stuff still comes out of the blue for me. It's very not, it's like ripples in a pond, you know, it's each ripple is kind of further apart and not as pronounced, but it's still there, you know, and I often get asked, how do I, how do I do this work? And what I find myself telling people is I'm not going home to it every night. Like home for me isn't a conservative Christian family. Right. Home for me is my wonderful partner, John, and my three cats and my two roommates. And it's just this incredibly loving, secure place. And yeah. so it's like, I know that no matter how hard a conversation might be or how emotionally trying, it's like, I will always come home. Yeah. And that secure, warm, yeah. little family that we have. Yeah. So I, so, so I would say the same thing, right? That, that I have curated a type of home space and home place where when I am home, I, I am held. Exactly. And, exactly. And, and um, I feel like that's really important. Yeah. In I the do midst too. of, you know, in the midst of like slaying dragons during the day. <laughs> yes. Yes. Being able to come home every night is yeah. is so important. Being able to see my three kitties and being able to be with my wonderful partner and and being able to hang out with my roommates. And it's having that community, having that be my home base, I think, is what makes it sustainable. And what what I think is horrible and heartbreaking is that there are still so many uh, queer trans LGBT in general, LGBTQ people who do not have that. Yeah, that's right. You know, and and who do not have that sense of security. And yep. I have been privileged enough to be able to find that sort of home and security that I can come home to no matter how difficult things are. Mm -hmm. Whereas 
I, you know, I had so many uh, queer people reach out to me and tell me that they are not in that place. Yeah, yeah. And that, that to me is what's, what's really heartbreaking and has to change. Well, and maybe this is a good place to just make a plug for um, support your local homeless LGBTQ Exactly. Shelter. Absolutely. Here, you know, here in Nashville, that's Launchpad. I don't know where it is or what that would be for you, where you are. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't actually know, and I should. So yeah. I will. I'll find out and, and plug that in Asheville. But it's, but it's, I think it's super I don't think important. there is one in Asheville, actually. Is I there know, not? No, I don't think there is. There, I know that. And I say that because I was at a queer church that was trying to start one because there wasn't one. Yeah. And so I'll have to look into that. Yeah. But, you know, I I feel like you make a good point about, you know, the one thing that people need is security. And it's the one Mm, thing that's under threat in, in these moments. And I think that this is another sort of contour of reasons why we need to restore ourselves and figure out how to be human with one another again, because we don't even feel like we belong with each other, much less ourselves. Right. So, Mm. you know, the, I mean, I don't know, this may sound depressing and pessimistic for people. Um, but in the pessimism, I think we find hope. I mean, there's a lot of fucking work to do and yes, there is. And it's like, we don't have time to take a break. I, I, you know, we don't have time to, go on vacation and whatever, but like we need those times, right. To, to put a bookmark in it. And also we don't have time, right? Like the two exist simultaneously for me. You know, for me, I, I've, I just come, I have just come to terms with the fact that it is unfair, you know, like I have come to terms with the fact that it is unfair that it is on the backs of queer people to get this sorted out. That is fucking awful and unfair and it shouldn't be that way and i'm gonna do it anyway because because humanity is too valuable yeah you know and and that's and i can you know vent all my rage and and be mad about that and i am very frequently and there are times when i put my foot down there are times when i say no that isn't my responsibility it, you know, it, it, there are times when I'm going to say it is not my responsibility to explain this to you right now. I'm not in the mood. I'm too tired. Right. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? And, and, and like, that's an OK thing to do. I yes, mean, absolutely. There, there are times when I may be out and people people will ask me a question and I draw a boundary. I'm like, you know, that like yes. I'm having dinner. I'm not going to answer that question. Yes, exactly. Or I'm at work. Like, right. I don't want it. Like, I'm more than happy to talk about this with you. Let's go get coffee. But I'm at work right now. I don't yeah. want to talk about this. Yeah. Or, you know, or I'm just too tired or too exhausted or whatever, you know. And so there are times when I put my foot down and I'm like, no, that isn't my responsibility right now. Right. But at the same time, I'm like. No one else is going to do this work, so it might as well be me. It might as well be us. You know what I'm saying? Well, that's the that's the T, right? Is yes, that, it is. Is that so many people are saying it's not my job, but right. the reality is it, it it is exactly your job, and you're 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 ignoring this reality is what is perpetuating the furthering of the yes. thing that is killing us all. Yes, you know that that brings to mind something of a tangent, but I think it's it's relevant. Jordan Peterson has this saying: uh, "Clean your room, you know, put your life in perfect order before you change the world." And he does that. I think he says that to to block what he calls the social justice warriors to say no, you know, 
fix yourself before you fix the world. And I had on, I, I've had on Douglas Lane on this show, a publisher at Zero Books and, and the Zero Books YouTube channel, and he's great. And he said that cleaning your room is cleaning up the world. Mm-hmm. And we do have the obligation to clean our room. And that means cleaning up the world. That That's means right. doing our part to clean the world. And I and I thought that was so brilliant. And but also, you know, I just have to clarify no because I because there have been times in my life where this kind of work just would have been too much for me. And so I just need to clarify to some listeners who might be struggling with this that if if you are emotionally or if you are emotionally compromised and in danger uh, and you feel like this sort of work that we're talking about would compromise you, then don't do it. Um, okay. You know, I feel I just feel like I need to put that out there. It's important for people to take care of themselves. Yes. And, and also when we do the deep inner work, we, we live differently. Our social practices, our social practices are different. And so when we change ourselves, we do change the world and the work at hand requires a diversity of approaches and there's no sort of norm to making change happen. Yes. And I think that we can all show up to do the work that we need to do to make the change so that we can see the kind of world that we want to see. And some of that may be cooking meals for organizers absolutely, asking if they need something from the grocery store or taking someone to tea or buying someone flowers. Like, I don't know, but it's not, it's not always being in the streets. It's not always being like organizing in ways that we that result in protests. It's also like learning how to be at home with someone. Exactly. And the fact that those protesters need the the people behind the scenes to support them. Yeah. And there's that yep. too. So you know. I mean I and I just have to say for the for the folks who are like super behind the scenes in my work, um, I, I do this work because I'm supported by a team and and I and I'm able to do the work I do in the world because of those who are supporting me. And, you know, they they deserve all the credit for for the mm. for the work that that in, in some part I'm able to accomplish. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for people who are creative, who are musical, who are writers, who are cooks, who are cleaners, who are just like literally every every, yep. every single thing under the sun, you know, like I work this really boring job uh, as a grocery store manager, but I... I have to see that work as holy work, as sacred work, and that that grocery store is my monastery. Because what I'm doing is I am bringing food, salvage food that would otherwise be in a dumpster, salvage food from places like Whole Foods and Trader Joe's, and marking it down like 90% in price and selling it to people who otherwise would not be able to eat half as well. Like, on the face of it, it's a grocery store job. But deeper than that, it is it is feeding people and it's 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 helping families, entire families have access, have 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 access to nutritional food, you know. And and so one thing that I've learned is that it's often in the boring little things. It's in presence. It's it's in it's in choosing to to be here now, as Ram Dass always says. Um, Well, I think that is 
a fantastic place to end. But do you have any final thoughts that you that you want to share with my listeners? I think the only final thought that I have that came to me as you were talking about your work in the grocery store is that so the kind of work that you do in the grocery store it creates possibility to mm. dismantle supremacy culture, right? Creating access points for people to have good food. Th- these are the things that we collectively need to be doing. And it requires yes. collective practice, a collective change in consciousness, and it, it requires us to figure out how to be human with one one another again, um, which I think starts with story. Absolutely. And yeah, if we start to change the story about who we are and who other people are, then we can really change the world. Yes. Yes. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've been so honored to talk to you and I I hope my listeners have enjoyed this. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I so appreciate it. it. It's good to be here. Thanks so much. Uh, for anyone who wants to find your work, where can they check that out? Yeah, so you can Google Activist Theology Project. It's activisttheology.com with one T. It's a mashup of activist and theology. Um and then my personal website is irobin.com, and that's the letter I-R-O-B-Y-N.com. And then, of course, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at irobin. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Maybe we can do this again. And if when your book comes out, if you want to come back on to talk about the book, just let me know. I'd be happy to have you on. Great. Thanks so much. It's good to be here. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is it for this show. Thank you so much for listening. As usual, the music is by the Jelly Rocks and T7. You can find their music on iTunes and Spotify and wherever you listen to music. Special thanks goes to my assistant, Justin, who does all of the graphics for all of my shows. So if you like uh, what you see on social media, that is all him. <laughs> so you can uh, you can follow him by going to the show notes. He's a great guy. He's also my co-host for House of Heretics on Patreon. He puts in a lot of work to make this show happen. Also, special thanks goes to my patrons, without whom this show would not exist. And if you would like to join their number, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, and you will get extra perks for supporting my work there. Other ways you can support this show, you can share it on social media, you can share it with your friends, you can also leave a five-star review on iTunes. That really helps to get the podcast get noticed by the algorithms, by our digital overlords, so that more people can listen. And most important of all, continue to listen to it and enjoy it because it is here for your enjoyment. As usual, Sacred Tension is written and edited and produced by me, Stephen Long, and it is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 